Chapter Six of Mosby's Memoirs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Mosby's Memoirs by Colonel John Singleton Mosby. Chapter Six. The Strategy of the Battle of Manassas On May 24, 1861, the day after Virginia ratified the secession ordinance, McDowell's army crossed the Potomac on three bridges. McDowell made his headquarters at Arlington, General Lee's home, and it should be recorded to his credit that he showed the highest respect for persons and property. One regiment of the New York Zouaves, commanded by Colonel Ellsworth, went on a steamer to Alexandria and landed under the guns of the Pawnee. A Confederate flag was flying from the top of a house which was owned by a citizen named Jackson. Ellsworth went up and pulled down the flag. As he descended the stairs, Jackson shot him, and was himself shot by a Union soldier. On June 26, McDowell's total strength present for duty was 153,682 men, and twelve guns. Patterson's was 14,344 men. Of McDowell's twenty regiments, seventeen were three months men. With the exception of one infantry regiment, four companies of cavalry, and three artillery companies, Patterson's force was composed of three months men. Johnston's force at the same time was 10,654 men, and five or six batteries. General Lee had selected Manassas Junction as the point for the concentration of the Confederate troops, on account of its being in connection with the valley. Beauregard was in command here, while Jackson and Johnston, with their forces, were across the Blue Ridge in the Shenandoah Valley. On June 15, Johnston retired towards Winchester, because, as he said, Patterson's army had reached the Potomac twenty miles above and he wanted to be in a position to repel an invasion of the valley, or quickly to reinforce Beauregard at Manassas. Johnston thought, so he said, that Patterson was making a combined movement with McDowell, who was expected to move from Washington on Richmond. If so, Johnston at Harper's Ferry had the interior line, and the choice of reinforcing Beauregard or striking Patterson. As Patterson hesitated, it showed that he was afraid to cross the Potomac with Johnston on his flank. Johnston's movement to Winchester, which, as I have said, was really a retreat, about doubled the distance between him and Beauregard. If he had really wanted to join Beauregard, his quickest way to do it would have been to march directly from Harper's Ferry to Bull Run. The distance would have been shorter than his march from Winchester to the railroad station on his way to Manassas. There he left nearly half of his army for want of transportation. It is remarkable, however, that Jackson's biographers, Dabney, Cook, and Henderson, regarded the retreat to Winchester as only a strategic move. Jackson did not think so. Jackson's brigade and Stuart's regiment of cavalry were sent to observe Patterson on the upper Potomac. Patterson had no cavalry for outpost duty, while Johnston had the regiments of Stuart and Ashby. Jackson's orders were to feel out the enemy, but to avoid an engagement. On July 2nd, Patterson crossed the Potomac, 
and Jackson showed sufficient resistance to compel him to display his force, and retired as his orders required. He was sure that Patterson had no aggressive purpose, but was only making a feint to create a diversion and retain Johnston in the valley, when McDowell moved against Beauregard at Manassas. Jackson thought that a blow at Patterson would have been the best way to cooperate with Beauregard. As Jackson had strict ideas of military discipline, he would not criticize his superiors, and although the order to fall back was a disappointment, he did not, like Achilles, sulk in his tent. But a letter he wrote at the time to his wife, read between the lines, shows the chagrin he felt. Colonel Henderson, in his Life of Jackson, said, The Federal Army crawled on to Martinsburg. Halting seven miles southwest, Jackson was reinforced by Johnston's whole command, and here for four days the Confederates, drawn up in line of battle, awaited attack. But the Federals stood fast in Martinsburg, and on the fourth day Johnston withdrew to Winchester. The Virginia soldiers were bitterly dissatisfied. At first even Jackson chafed. He was eager for action. His experience at Falling Waters had given him no exalted notion of the enemy's prowess, and he was ready to engage them single-handed. "'I want my brigade,' he said, "'to feel that it can itself whip Patterson's whole army, and I believe that we can do it.'" The truth is that the numerical difference in the strength of the two armies was inconsiderable. But Johnston's had a great advantage in morale, and a superior force of cavalry. On July 15, in obedience to General Scott's orders, Patterson moved up the valley, threw some shells at Stuart's regiment, and then turned squarely around and retreated towards Harper's Ferry. The movement was so timid that it was more a farce than a feint. Patterson was not seeking a fight. His movement was only a blind. If the Confederates had then taken the offensive, there would have been a foot-race towards the Potomac, and McDowell would not have moved against the troops at Manassas. The most effective way to aid Beauregard was to strike Patterson. The next year Jackson did what should have been done in 1861. He turned on Banks and swept him out of the Shenandoah Valley, creating such alarm in Washington that McDowell, who was moving from Fredericksburg to join McClellan at Richmond, was recalled to save the capital. The following dispatch to McClellan from Mr. Lincoln shows what Jackson did in 1862 and what he would have done in 1861 if he had been in command. May 24, 1862. In consequence of General Banks's critical position, I have been compelled to suspend General McDowell's movements to join you. The enemy are making a desperate push on Harper's Ferry, and we are trying to throw General Fremont's force and a part of McDowell's in their rear. The next that was heard of Jackson he had defeated Fremont and Shields in the valley, and then turned off on McClellan's flank at Cold Harbor. In July 1861 the larger part of the troops at Manassas should have gone to Johnston instead of his reinforcing Beauregard. That is, if Johnston was willing to take the offensive and cross the Potomac, that was the best way to defend Richmond. On July 17 McDowell began his movement towards the Confederate capital. Mr. Davis telegraphed to Johnston at Winchester to join Beauregard if practicable. He said, General Beauregard is attacked. 
To strike the enemy a decisive blow, a junction of all your effective force will be needed. If practicable, make the movement, sending your sick and baggage to Culpeper Courthouse, either by railroad or by Warrington. In all arrangements exercise your discretion. President Davis endorsed on Johnston's report of the battle that his order, or rather request to Johnston to join Beauregard, gave him discretion because Johnston's letters of July 12 and 13 made it doubtful whether General Johnston had the power to effect the movement. In the letters, Johnston said that he had to, quote, defeat Patterson or elude him, end quote. It would have been impossible for him to defeat Patterson as the latter was running, as Patterson was trying to elude Johnston. The latter had no trouble in eluding Patterson. On July 13, General Johnston telegraphed to President Davis, Unless he, Patterson, prevents it, we shall move toward Beauregard today. Up to that time, Johnston does not seem to have contemplated, nor was there any plan for, any concerted action between Johnston and Beauregard. The march to Manassas did not begin until noon of the 18th. Jackson's brigade was in the advance. It waded the Shenandoah, climbed the Blue Ridge, and arrived at Manassas by rail on the next day. When the troops left Winchester, they could not have been expected to join Beauregard at Manassas before a battle, because McDowell's delay of three days at Centerville could not have been anticipated. On the 17th, General Scott telegraphed Patterson that McDowell would take Manassas the next day, which probably would have been done if Scott's program to cross the Occoquan and turn the Confederate right had been carried out. But McDowell changed the plan, waited to make a reconnaissance on the Confederate left, and decided to cross Bull Run at Sudley. Beauregard was not expecting aid from Johnston, for in a telegram to the War Department he said, I believe this proposed movement of General Johnston is too late. Enemy will attack me in force to-morrow morning." When Johnston left the valley, Patterson was in camp at Charlestown. As late as the 19th, Patterson insisted that Johnston was at Winchester, receiving reinforcements, but on the 20th he acknowledged that Johnston had gone. It was then too late for him to give assistance to McDowell in the battle the next day. When Patterson was reproached for what he had not done, he consoled Scott by telling him that if he had attacked Joe Johnston, he, Scott, would have had to mourn the loss of two battles instead of one. Johnston arrived at Beauregard's headquarters at Manassas at noon on July 20, but nearly half of his army was left behind him. Beauregard's army was posted on Bull Run at five or six fords, stretching from Stone Bridge to Union Mills, a distance of eight miles. Bull Run is a creek running through a largely wooded country, and is passable anywhere but for its steep banks. Johnston's troops were posted behind Beauregard's at the fords, and Jackson was placed in the rear of Bonham. McDowell's headquarters were in plain view six miles distant at Centerville, and also in view of the signal station Captain Alexander had established on the Manassas Plain. Beauregard proposed an offensive plan which Johnston approved, but no attempt was made to execute it. The battle was defensive on the Confederate side. 
Early on the morning of the 21st, the signal officers discovered McDowell's column marching toward Sudley to turn our left at Stone Bridge. They reported the movement to General Evans, who commanded there, and to headquarters. Johnston's brigades were in the rear of the fords as reserves, ready to be moved to any point on the line. As Bull Run presented no defensive advantages, it is hard to discover why that line was selected. No matter whether Beauregard intended to act on the offensive or defensive, his army should have been concentrated at one or two fords, instead of being distributed at several. Long afterwards Beauregard claimed that Johnston accepted his plan of battle, waived his rank, and consented to act as his chief of staff. As there was no emergency that required such an abdication of authority, and as there was ample time for Johnston to learn the conditions and get all the topographical knowledge necessary, it would have been shirking responsibility for him to have done so. His objective, McDowell's army, was in sight. He was near Bull Run, and he could easily learn from maps where the fords were and the roads that led to them. Beauregard and his staff officers could have easily told him how the troops were disposed. With such explanation Johnston might, in an hour or so, have taken in the whole situation. Very few commanders were ever on the ground more than a few hours before a battle. It is not their business to act as guides. The country furnishes plenty of them. Of course generals must utilize other men's knowledge. But the inconsistency is that Beauregard claims the credit as commander-in-chief for winning the victory, but makes Johnston responsible for the failure to reap the fruit of it. He contradicts his own report, written a few days after the battle, which says that the army, after the hard day's fighting, was in no condition to pursue. He did not seem to know that he had fifteen thousand fresh men on the field, and that the remainder of Johnson's men arrived next morning. In his military memoirs, General Alexander, who was chief signal officer, and also in the evening carried orders on the field, said, Not far off, Stonewall Jackson, who had been shot through the hand, but had disregarded it until victory was assured, was now having his hand dressed by Dr. Hunter McGuire. Jackson did not catch the President's Davis, words, and Dr. McGuire repeated them to him. Jackson quickly shouted, We have whipped them. They ran like sheep. Give me five thousand men, and I will be in Washington City tomorrow morning. Dr. Edward Campbell, a surgeon in Jackson's brigade, told me soon after the war that he heard Jackson make that speech. But Johnson's endorsement on Beauregard's order of battle shows that so far from waving, he asserted his rank as commander. Here it is. 4.30 a.m., July 21st. The plan of battle given by General Beauregard in the above order is approved and will be executed accordingly. Signed, J. E. Johnston, General, C.S. Army. As Beauregard submitted his program to Johnson's approval, he recognized Johnson as his superior officer. Orders are not submitted to the approval of subordinates. As a worse plan of operations could hardly have been devised, Johnston might have given Beauregard credit for it if he had adopted it. As there was no attempt to execute it, however, it is immaterial who was the author. The battle was fought on McDowell's plan. 
What was most remarkable was that instead of directing its immediate execution by an advance of his columns on Centerville, it instructed brigade commanders to hold themselves in readiness to advance, but to await orders. None but D. R. Jones received such an order to cross the run that morning, and his was soon revoked. As the enemy was in their front, old soldiers like Jackson, Longstreet, and Ewell ought to have been presumed to be ready for combat without instructions. If the Confederates were to assume the offensive to turn McDowell, their movement should have been begun, as McDowell's was, before daybreak, and as they would have had to move through a wooded country, their column should have been as much as possible in sight of, and in supporting distance, of each other. But what is stranger still is that Beauregard's order of battle, though it contemplated the offensive, is dated at 4.30 a.m. July 21, long AFTER McDowell's army was in motion. McDowell issued his order of battle on the 20th. McDowell saw the danger of keeping the wings of his army so far apart, and said, I had felt anxious about the road from Manassas by Blackburn's Ford to Centerville along this ridge, fearing that while we should be in force to the front, and endeavouring to turn the enemy's position, we ourselves should be turned by him by this road. For if he should once obtain possession of this ridge, which overlooks all the country to the west, to the foot of the spurs to the Blue Ridge, we should have been irretrievably cut off and destroyed. I had, therefore, directed this point to be held in force, and sent an engineer to extemporize some field works to strengthen the position. The divisions were ordered to march at 2.30 o'clock a.m., so as to arrive on the ground early in the day, and thus avoid the heat which was to be expected at this season. If the Confederates had moved in two columns from the lower fords, while Evans and Cock attracted the attention of the enemy above, they would have reached Centerville before McDowell reached Sudley, and they would have been between McDowell and Washington. In that event McDowell said his army would have been destroyed. McDowell saw more clearly than the Confederate generals what they ought to do, but he trusted to their not doing it. Beauregard's first plan for a simultaneous advance from all the Bull Run fords to Centerville was impracticable in the wooded country, and it was well that no attempt was made to execute it. His line of battle would have been several miles long. Beauregard commanded that day under Johnston, as Meade commanded the Army of the Potomac under Grant. Beauregard's report said, General Johnston arrived here about noon of the 20th of July and being my senior in rank he necessarily assumed command of the forces of the confederate states then concentrating at this point made acquainted with my plan of operations and dispositions to meet the enemy he gave them his entire approval and generously directed their execution under my command beauregard must have forgotten when he wrote afterwards and claimed that he was commander-in-chief at bull run that he had ever written that Johnston was. Beauregard said that, being informed at 5.30 a.m. that a strong force was deployed in front of Stone Bridge, he ordered Evans and Cock to maintain their positions to the last extremity, and that he thought the most effective method of relieving his left was by making a determined attack by his right. No doubt that was so. He knew, 
long before McDowell reached Sudley, that Ewell, Holmes, Jones, and Early had not advanced on Centerville, and there was then abundance of time for them to have reached Centerville before McDowell reached Sudley. But he said that the news from the left afterwards changed his plan. As it was clear that McDowell was making only a feeble demonstration in our front, and none on our right, he must have known early in the morning that the main portion of his army was moving against our left. He could not have expected McDowell to stand still, nor does he give a satisfactory reason for a change of plan, but the reverse. McDowell was doing what he ought to have wanted him to do. At 7.10 a.m., D. R. Jones, whose brigade was at McLean's Ford, near headquarters, said he received the following order. Brigadier General D. R. Jones. General. General Ewell has been ordered to take the offensive upon Centerville. You will follow the movement at once by attacking him in your front. July 21, 1861. Signed, G. T. Beauregard, Brigadier. Ewell was at the next ford below, with Holmes's brigade in support. It was not pretended that any such orders were sent to the brigades at the fords above. Longstreet, who was at Blackburn's Ford, with Early in support, said that in obedience to orders of the 20th to assume the offensive, he crossed Bull Run early on the morning of the 21st. But as he immediately came in contact with the enemy, and ordered his men to lie down under cover from the artillery fire, he does not seem to have been ordered to move on Centerville, and does not refer to any such order. He must have been waiting for further orders. It is clear that Bonham received no orders to cross the run, as he did not attempt it, although the enemy opened fire on him early in the morning. He said that even before daylight one of his aides, General McGowan, brought intelligence that the enemy was moving on his left, and that he arose, and with a field-glass discovered the enemy moving on the pike to Stone Bridge. He said that he immediately communicated the news to headquarters, and directed his command to prepare for action, as he supposed, quote, an assault would be made early along our whole line, end quote. But no such assault was ordered. Early, who was near McLean's farm in support of Longstreet, did not mention receiving any order to move on Centerville. Neither did Jackson, who was supporting Bonham at Mitchell's Ford. He simply got an order to place himself in position where he could reinforce either Cock or Bonham. In the meantime, Jackson ascertained that B, who had been sent with his own and Bartow's brigades to reinforce Evans, was hard-pressed. He seems to have moved, in the exercise of his own discretion, where the sound of the cannon indicated that the real conflict was. When he reached the plateau where the Henry House stood, he met the shattered brigades of B and Bartow retreating. Jackson formed his brigade on the crest of the ridge, which will forever be associated with his name. General Alexander described the scene as follows. A fresh brigade was drawn up in line on the elevated ground known as Henry House Hill, and its commander, till then unknown, was henceforth to be called Stonewall. B. rode up to him and said, General, they are driving us. Then, sir, said Jackson, we must give them the bayonet. B. galloped among his retreating men and called out to them, See Jackson standing like a stone wall, 
rally behind the Virginians. It was at this moment when Jackson's and Hampton's were the only organized troops opposing the Federal advance, and B. and Bartow were attempting to rally their broken forces, that Johnston and Beauregard reached the field. This was the crisis of the battle, as Jackson's heroic bearing electrified the troops and saved the day. Jackson selected this place as a battleground, and the great struggle was for the possession of the plateau. This was crescent-shaped, the ridge forming a cover which protected his men from artillery fire. Jones said that after getting the order from Beauregard to cross the run and follow Ewell, he sent a message to Ewell, but crossed and took a position on the road from Union Mills to Centerville, and waited for Ewell. In the meantime he received the following order directing him to return. 10.30 a.m. General Jones. On account of the difficulties in our front it is thought preferable to countermand the advance of the right wing. Resume your position. Beauregard said that as early as 5.30 a.m., the enemy opened fire on Evans at Stone Bridge, and that by 8.30 a.m. he discovered that it was a mask to cover a movement around his flank, and Evans promptly moved to meet it. So it was then clear that the enemy would be on the left. Instead of a change of plans and a retrograde movement, when this was discovered, it was the opportune moment to order our right to advance. Only four companies were left to hold Stone Bridge against Tyler's division, they held it all day. The sound of the battle will now informed our generals where the main effort of the enemy would be made. The difficulties in his front, of which Beauregard spoke in his note to Jones as the cause for revoking the order to advance, instead of deterring, should have encouraged him to take the offensive. It was now clear that there was only a small force between him and the enemy's rear at Centerville. Hunter's and Heinzelman's divisions reached Sudley Ford, at least eight miles away, about 9.30 a.m. They halted for rest and for the men to fill their canteens from the stream. The main body of the Confederate army was then about half the distance from Centerville that Sudley is. The three brigades of miles that were in reserve on the road to Blackburn's and McLean's fords could easily have been brushed aside before any reinforcements could have reached them. Then one of his brigade commanders, Richardson, reported that Colonel Stevens, who commanded a regiment there, said, We have no confidence in Colonel Miles, because Colonel Miles is drunk, all of which was in our favor. It was much better for the Confederates if Ewell's and Jones's forward movements were delayed until nine o'clock by a miscarriage of orders, for by that time McDowell had progressed too far to turn back when he heard of it. When at Austerlitz, Napoleon saw the Allies marching towards his rear. He told his marshals to be quiet, not to interrupt them. After their movement had developed sufficiently, he struck such a blow as Johnston and Beauregard might have repeated at Centerville. McDowell dreaded such a counterstroke, and in the morning on the road to Sudley he halted Howard and kept his brigade in reserve near the pike until noon to meet such a contingency. On the field McDowell saw what he might do, and reports from the signal stations and heavy firing told Johnston and Beauregard what they could do, that the enemy had exposed his rear. But, in my judgment, said Beauregard, it was now 10.30 a.m., 
too late for the contemplated movement. Napoleon would have thought it was the hour for it to begin. It is a mystery why the Confederate generals abandoned their plan, if they ever had such a plan. Alexander said, About 8 a.m. Johnston and Beauregard, accompanied by their staffs and couriers, rode to the vicinity of Mitchell's Ford, where they left their party under cover and took position on an open hill some two hundred yards to the left of the road. Richardson was in their front, making a feint by shelling the woods. If he had intended a real attack, he would not have halted. The resistance made by Evans's small force on the Sudley Road showed that, with reinforcement of Cox's brigade at the ford below, McDowell's turning column could have been held in check until ours took Centerville. The fact is that the roaring guns and the despairing cry for help from Centerville would have stampeded McDowell. General Johnston said the news from our left made their plan impracticable. I think it showed not only that it was practicable, but a dead sure thing if they had attempted to execute it. McDowell thought so, too. I am not judging the Confederate generals by the lights that are now before me, but by what their reports say was before them then. Again, quoting Alexander. As he rode out in the morning, Beauregard directed me to go with a courier to the Wycoxen signal station, and remain in general observation of the field, sending messages of all I could discover. I went reluctantly, as the opportunity seemed very slight of rendering any service. There were but two signal stations on our line of battle, one in rear of McLean's Ford, and one near Van Pelt's house, on a bluff a few hundred yards to the left and rear of Stone Bridge. Beyond the latter, the broad level valley of Bull Run, for some miles with its fields and pastures, as seen through the glass, was foreshortened into a narrow band of green. While watching the flag of this station with a good glass, when I had been there about half an hour, the sun being in the east behind me, my eye was caught by a glitter in this narrow band of green. I recognized it at once as the reflection of the morning sun from a brass field-piece. Closer scrutiny soon revealed the glittering of bayonets and masked barrels. It was about 8.45 a.m., and I had discovered McDowell's turning column, the head of which at this hour was just arriving at Sudley, eight miles away. I appreciated how much it might mean, and thought it best to give Evans immediate notice even before sending word to Beauregard. So I signaled Evans quickly, "'Look out for your left, you are turned.' Evans afterwards told me that a picket, which he had at Sudley, being driven in by the enemy's advance guard, had sent a courier, and the two couriers, one with my signal message and one with the report of the picket, reached him together. The simultaneous reports from different sources impressed him, and he acted at once with sound judgment. He left four companies of his command to watch the bridge, and the enemy in his front, Tyler and his three brigades, with the remainder of his force, six companies of the 4th South Carolina, and Wheat's Louisiana Battalion. He marched to oppose and delay the turning column, at the same time notifying Cock, next on his right, of his movement. Having sent Evans notice of his danger, I next wrote to Beauregard as follows. I see a body of troops crossing Bull Run, about two miles above the stone bridge. 
The head of the column is in the woods on this side. The rear of the column is in the woods on the other side. About half a mile of its length is visible in the open ground between. I can see both infantry and artillery. This message reached Beauregard in a few minutes. Johnston's report said, About eight o'clock General Beauregard and I placed ourselves on a commanding hill in rear of General Bonham's left, Mitchell's Ford. Near nine o'clock the signal officer, Captain Alexander, reported that a large body of troops was crossing the valley of Bull Run some two miles above the bridge. General B., who had been placed near Colonel Cox's position, Colonel Hampton with his legion, and Colonel Jackson from a point near General Bonham's left were ordered to hasten to the left flank. Alexander continued his account. For a long time there was little change, and the battle seemed to stand still. When Evans and B. were broken by Sherman's attack on the flank, their retreat was specially pressed by the Federal artillery. On reaching the Warrenton Pike they were met by the Hampton Legion, and Hampton made an earnest effort to rally the retreating force upon his command. The ground, however, was unfavorable, and though Hampton made a stubborn fight, losing 121 out of 600 men, and delaying the advance near two hours before leaving the pike, our whole line then fell back under the enemy's fire. Jackson now came to the rescue. He had 2,611 men, and with the remnants of Hampton's 600, they were the only organized troops opposing the enemy's advance. B., Bartow, and Evans were engaged in rallying their troops as Johnston and Beauregard appeared. Johnston took up his headquarters a short distance in the rear to direct reinforcements, while the immediate conduct of the battle was left to Beauregard. His task was to hold the line until fresh troops could be brought upon the scene. MacDowell's last chance was to crush Beauregard's line at once, before any reinforcements arrived. Some of his brigades were absent. Burnside's had drawn off for rest and ammunition, and his partial attacks only consumed time. About three o'clock Kirby Smith's brigade arrived, and it was closely followed by Early's brigade and Beckham's battery. Kirby Smith was severely wounded just as he was extending his line on our left, and Elsie took command. Kirby Smith was the first man I ever saw carried from the field on a stretcher. About four o'clock Beauregard advanced his whole line, and the 18th Virginia under Colonel Withers, the 8th Virginia under Colonel Hunton, and the Hampton Legion, with Jackson's brigade, swept the field and turned the enemy's guns on them. Early, with Beckham's battery and Stuart's cavalry, crossed the Warrenton Pike, and opened on the flank and rear of a new line which McDowell had formed. This force had no artillery to reply to ours, and it soon broke. McDowell said, The retreat soon became a rout, and this soon degenerated into a panic. Heinzelman said, Such a rout I never witnessed before. Stuart's cavalry had charged and routed the Ellsworth Zoavs on the Sudley Road as they were coming to the support of the Federal batteries. Heinzelman led the Zoavs. His account of this was as follows. In the meantime I sent orders for the Zoavs to move forward to support Ricketts' battery on its right. As soon as they came up I led them forward against an Alabama regiment, partly concealed in a clump of small pines in an old field. 
At the first fire they broke, and the greater portion fled to the rear, keeping up a desultory fire over the heads of their comrades in front. At the same time they were charged by a company of secession cavalry on their rear, who had come by a road through two strips of woods on our extreme right. Stuart's charge was not on the rear of the Zouaves, but on their front, when they were advancing to the support of the batteries. Heintzelman said the regiment dispersed and did not appear on the field again. The greater portion kept on to New York. Porter said, The evanescent courage of the Zouaves prompted them to fire perhaps a hundred shots, when they broke and fled, leaving the batteries open to a charge of the enemy's cavalry, which took place immediately. Soon the slopes behind us were swarming with our retreating and disorganized forces, whilst riderless horses and artillery teams ran furiously through the flying crowd. As McDowell, with the larger part of his army, had moved in a circle by Sudley, and as they retreated by the same route, if our troops on the field had moved on the straight line on the pike leading over Stonebridge to Centerville, they would have cut off their retreat. This is what Jackson wanted to do. After the battle had shifted, Alexander joined Beauregard. He said that Jackson alone of the Confederate leaders on the field gave any evidence of his appreciation of the victory. After the war, Dr. Edward Campbell, a surgeon of Jackson's brigade, told me that Jackson said to him, I wonder if General Johnston and General Beauregard know how badly they, the enemy, are whipped. If they will let me, I will march my brigade into Washington to-night. Alexander said he heard Jackson tell President Davis the same thing. His account concludes, Jackson's offer to take Washington City the next morning with five thousand men had been made to the President as he arrived upon the field, probably about five o'clock. It was not sunset until 7.15, and there was nearly a full moon. But the President himself and both generals spent these precious hours in riding over the field where the conflict had taken place. Johnston and Beauregard both sent orders to different commands to make such advances, but neither went in person to supervise or urge forward the execution of the order, though time was of the essence. Kershaw, with two South Carolina regiments, Camper with two guns, and some cavalry were all the troops that pursued over Stone Bridge, although there were several brigades near that that had not been much engaged, some not at all. Alexander carried the first order from Beauregard about 6 p.m. in checking pursuit. It directed Kershaw to advance over Bull Run carefully, but not to attack. Alexander, surprised at his ill-timed caution, asked if he forbade any attack. Beauregard replied that Kershaw must wait for Kemper and pursue cautiously. It would have been as easy to send half a dozen batteries as one. Alexander overtook Kershaw just as Kemper's two guns opened on the retreating column, and upset a wagon on Cub Run Bridge that created a blockade by which a good deal of artillery was lost. On his way back to Beauregard, Alexander met a staff officer carrying an order for all the troops to return. Alexander was at the council of Mr. Davis and the generals that night at Manassas. The conclusion was reached to make a reconnaissance the next morning. Some cavalry scouting parties were sent, who saw nothing but the wreck of McDowell's army. 
it would have been as easy to have found that out before midnight as in the morning, if they had tried, as no attempt was made to rally the retreating army. McDowell sent a dispatch from Fairfax Courthouse. The larger part of the men are a confused mob, entirely demoralized. It was the opinion of all the commanders that no stand could be made this side of the Potomac. They are now passing through this place in a state of utter disorganization. Edwin M. Stanton, afterwards Secretary of War, on July 26, five days after the battle, wrote to ex-President Buchanan, The capture of Washington now seems to be inevitable. During the whole of Monday and Tuesday it might have been taken without resistance. The rout, overthrow, and demoralization of the army is complete. General Johnston afterwards said as an excuse for not pursuing that his army was as much demoralized by victory as the enemy's by defeat. Nobody suspected it then. We had about 15,000 troops on the field who had not been engaged, and a good many arrived the next morning. On the caisson attached to one of Kemper's guns, when it swept over Bull Run, was an old Virginian whose long white hair hung over his shoulders and gave him the look of a patriarch. When Kemper unlimbered near Cub Run, he claimed the privilege of firing the first gun. He had done the same when Beauregard opened his batteries on Sumter. When the curtain was let down on the last scene at Appomattox, he blew out his brains and ended life's fitful fever. In his report General Johnston said that our victory was as complete as one gained by infantry and artillery can be. He took no account of Stuart's charge at a critical moment when the Zouaves were coming upon Jackson's flank, nor of the fact that his army exceeded McDowell's in numbers, and had three or four times as much cavalry. The returns show that in Beauregard's army that day there were 1,468 cavalry, and that Stuart, who had come from the Shenandoah Valley, had twelve companies. Besides, Ashby arrived the day after the battle with a cavalry regiment. Johnston and Beauregard had a total of effectives that day of 31,982 men and 55 guns, although they sent only two guns over the run in pursuit. McDowell's total was 29,862 men and but seven companies of cavalry. Cavalry is needed as much to cover a retreat as to pursue. We had enough cavalry to have taken Washington. It is true, as General Johnston said, that the city is situated on an unfordable river, but less than twenty miles above is a ford at Seneca, where Stuart crossed going to Gettysburg, and I often afterwards crossed there. Our cavalry was nearer Seneca than McDowell's army was to Washington when the retreat began, and ought to have crossed the Potomac that night. The next day it could have easily moved around towards Baltimore, broken communications, and isolated Washington. It is paradoxical but true that the Confederate cause was lost at Bull Run. Yet the victory reflected on those who wanted all the glory that was Greece and the grandeur that was Rome. And no matter now what men may speculate as to what might have been, cold must be the heart that can read that glorious record and not feel sympathy with sons that set.
End of chapter.